Hey everyone, thanks for taking time to listen to our latest sermon. When we decided to do this series, Enemies, we knew it was relevant to all that is going on in our country and the world. However, as we moved closer to Matt starting the series, it became clear that a study of what God says about dealing with those that are against us is as pertinent as ever and one of the most significant topics in our country right now. God's timing really is incredible. With the timeliness of this series in mind, I hope that you will subscribe to this podcast so that you have the best chance to hear all of the sermons. Also, please share these sermons. I honestly believe that you doing so can make our country and maybe even our world a little bit better. Again, thanks for listening. I trust that these sermons will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So the um, last week's sermon was posted online, the video was put out, and um, I always thought I was like a little bit funny, and uh, when I listened to parts of the video uh, in areas that I thought I was maybe a little bit funny, uh, I heard only my mother laughing, (laughs) and so... It looks like I was giving a sermon to a room of one, um, but I always appreciate that nonetheless. So, Mom, I love you. Um, but the, wor- the, the first week I spoke about what the rules are um, and how we really need to know what God's expectations are. And I stated uh, last week that we need to love even when it's hard, and we need to love not because, but despite. So we need to love not because of how somebody makes us feel and uh, not because of what they do for us, um, but really despite those things. We need to love them despite how they might make us feel or despite how they might hurt us. Those are the rules. Those are God's expectations. And I, I use the example of how the world in many ways is playing checkers. Uh, where the goal is to eliminate as many of your opponent's pieces as possible. The objective is total annihilation. And I talked about how they got the board right, but they got the game wrong. Because we're called to love even when it's hard. And so I wanted to to use this week to talk a little bit about what that looks like. And the verse I'm going to use is Romans 12, 14 through 20. This is what it says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And I've got 
three points that I want to make, and frankly, if you remember one of them, I think it's a step in the right direction. Last week, the love, uh, be, love despite not because was what Chad would call my sticky statement. So I say it enough and I throw it out there enough that I hope that it sticks. Um, so I'm going to have three things that one of which I hope sticks. And the first one, at first I called it feeling is forged in the fire of hard work. I was like, that is way too much. So I just, says, I just called it feeling follows action. Um, and I had my very last day at Costco yesterday. I, yeah, right? And uh, I got off work, and I'm thinking, man, I'm, this is going to be liberating, because if you don't know this, um, I, I didn't really like Costco. Really, it, just, it, it, it is an awesome company. It takes care of its employees, but um, I didn't enjoy it as a job, so I was thinking, this is my last day. How awesome is this going to feel? And I get home, and I lay in my bed, and I bawl. So first thing I did, I'm, I'm emotional just thinking about it. And I'm, I, and I'm so conflicted. I'm like, why am I crying? It's my last day. I should feel great. Do I love Costco? What's going on? And I realized it wasn't that I loved Costco. It's that I loved the people. And that was the hardest thing to miss. And I'll tell you, when I was uh, young uh, and I just started really in management there, um, it's hard because so many people there are, are older in those, pos- in those positions. And as a, a younger person in management to go and have to be in charge of people who have been there for 25 years, it's not always easy. And so one of the things that I decided that I wanted to do as a leader, which was any department, because they rotate you all the time when you're a manager. You'll go to all kinds of different places. And I thought, man, how am I going to get respect? Right? Do I want to do it by fear and domination? Say, hey, I have this authority. And I decided early on that it's not me. It's not what I want to do. And so what I began doing was any department I went to, I would ask, what do people enjoy the least in this department? What do they not like doing? You know, whether it's uh, installing the uh, 60-inch and larger TVs in the major sales area, because you have to pick them up and go gymnastic style and plug in these cords, or is it um, working those tables where people are out there trying to sell you on, like, American Express or whatever? It's, it's Citibank now, but whatever, doing those things. Is it cleaning the bathrooms and member service? What is it? What is it? And then I make a special effort for the following weeks to be the person who does those things. Because it is so much easier to respect and to follow somebody who knows your job and the worst aspects of it. It's so much easier to follow someone who is in the trenches with you, who's fighting alongside with you, makes it easier to love somebody when you're working with them. And I'll say that it makes it easier, and I won't say that it is easy, only that it's easier, because I've definitely worked with some people who are uh, terribly hard to love. Um, I I think about... um, a person at Costco, whom will be unnamed, 
because last time I tried to make up a name and I said the real name. <laughs> I don't know, just what came to me. Uh, this person who will remain unnamed intentionally uh, had worked at Costco and still works at Costco and, and for many, many years. And in this case, they worked in the membership and the marketing department. And when I was uh, tasked to lead them, they have this very, very strong sense of pride and entitlement, and mu much of it earned. They've been there a very long time. But in their mind, everything they did was right. They never made mistakes. They never needed to be told what to do. And uh, they certainly never needed to be told where to go. In their mind, I was completely and utterly superfluous, which is unneeded. And I thought, I really don't like this person. And frankly, it looks like they don't like me. And I was sick and tired of it. And I, I was wanting to fire them, frankly. Let's just get rid of this person. I can't work with this person. They can't work with me. And I thought, man, I could go in there and I could persuade them with fear and domination and say, I'm holding your job on the line here. It is on a thin string and I'm holding the scissors and I'm ready to, ready to cut it. And I thought, that's not me. And I made the intentional choice to work lovingly with this person and to remain in the trenches with this person and work side by side. I made the choice to love. And somewhere along the way, God made the change. And I wish I could point out a singular transformative moment where it just all turned around, but it didn't happen that way. There wasn't a singular transformative moment. There was the long fight. Somewhere along the way, we were no longer enemies. And farther down the road, we became friends. Uh, and uh, my wife sees this gentleman sometimes, and he still is always talking about how I was his favorite. <laughs> uh, and I love it, and I love him. Because I worked in the trenches with them. And it's funny because Paul says, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. And he's saying this in the context of enemies. Work with these people. Be intentional about your involvement in their lives. If you make the choice to love them, I will make the change in your heart and in your mind, and, and frankly, hopefully, in their hearts and their minds too. And I say make the choice to love because there is a different kind of love or, or an aspect of the same type. Um, because we say that love is in action, and that's true. Love is absolutely in action. But we, we all have those experiences where we can do the right thing. But it's not really for the right reasons or out of the right heart, right? If someone walks in with a new hairdo and you're like, oh, Becky, 
your hair looks great, right? And they walk away and you look at your friend and you're like, honestly, that hairdo makes her whole head look like a basted turkey. It really does, right? It's not true. It's not real. So in many ways, there are things that can get us doing the right thing, but not for the right reasons. Uh, my cookie limit was three growing up. But if my mom was not in the kitchen, I certainly would have taken more. Absolutely, if it were not for the fear that she would catch me and beat me with a meat tenderizer. <laughs> I'm just kidding. One time she accidentally pulled a meat tenderizer out of the drawer and waved it at me like she was going to spank me with that, which is very ominous. But it wasn't for the right reasons. It's not like I could just all of a sudden change how I was feeling, realign my moral compass. It's just not what I felt. It's not what I believed. So I did the right thing, but not because of some internal beliefs that were right. My heart wasn't right. My, um, there are kids in here. So my, uh, okay, how will I? My uh, father took me aside one day when I, he thought I was old enough to no longer believe in a certain person who comes around a certain holiday. Are we on the same page? Okay? He said, you, you know, you're old enough. I need to tell you the truth about this certain person. And he went over the various uh, things that this person does and told me how it's not real and how, you know, you're old enough this is all of it, and I'm sitting there, I'm nodding. Mm -hmm. I get it, I get it, I get it. Makes sense, it makes sense. Absolutely. And he ends this uh, speech that he's giving me about this jolly individual. <laughs> and he says, now son, do you have any questions? I say, absolutely. Now I was wondering precisely how this person fits down the chimney. <laughs> I didn't believe it. He told me the whole story, but I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. It's not what I believed. It's not what I felt. So telling somebody to love and feel it and mean it, it's, you can't control that, right? You can't just all of a sudden, if I said, hey, you right now need to love me. You know, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I do now. Had you not pointed at me and done it like that, I wouldn't have, but now I do. Just doesn't happen. So when it says, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice, how do we do that? It doesn't make sense. We can't just make ourselves feel that way. And that's where that point, feeling follows action, comes into play. So in the summer of 1971, there was a, a team of researchers, and it was led by a psychology prof professor named Philip Zimbardo. And he took these undergraduate students, and he separated them into groups. Some of them were prisoners, and some of them were prison guards. And in the basement of a building... Uh, in a, at Stanford, psychology building in Stanford, they played out this scenario. 
where there were guards and where there were prisoners. And what happened almost immediately was the guards took on this authoritarian attitude. They really started to act like prison guards. And then the prisoners started to become incredibly passive and in many ways depressed. And after only six days, they actually had to stop this because of how intense and real it became. And many people in psychology use this as an example of how social roles affect our behavior. But the larger point is that how our behavior can elicit strong, real, powerful emotions. They were not real guards. They were not real prisoners. They were students. They were volunteers. Yet by acting the part, they started to feel the part. And now this has become a long-standing reality in psychology where certain behavior will lead us to having the accompanying emotions. You just smiling, even if you don't feel it, for instance, will make you happier. They've shown this. If you make the choice to love despite how you may feel, God will make the change. He'll make it in your heart. He'll make it in your mind. Your feeling will follow your behavior. It really will. And it's something that as Christians, if we want to see peace and love in the world, then we need to embody that. And we need to be intentional about living that out in our lives and in our communities with people, despite how we might feel. Because we won't always feel it. We won't. And in my marriage, if I always lived out what I was feeling, I wouldn't be a very good husband. Because you need to love despite how you may feel. And God will make the change. But there are um, roadblocks. Roadblocks that can get in the way of us loving the way that God wants us to love. And one of the roadblocks that Paul mentions here is revenge. So the second point I want to make is that revenge is a roadblock. Uh, and I, I, I found a story when I was looking up revenge. It's about a, a mother who ran into her room when she heard her six-year-old boy crying out, just screaming. She runs into the room, and she sees that her two-year-old daughter is just yanking on the boy's hair. And she, she goes, and she gently releases the girl's grip and says, now, now, to the boy, she doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't know that it hurts. And the boy nodded and understood. And so the mother says, okay, you know, I handled that situation. She walks out of the room and starts walking down the hall. And then she hears the two-year-old daughter starts screaming. And she runs in the room and says, what happened? And the boy said, well, she knows now. <laughs> right? Because that's what we want to do. If we're hurt, we want them to know what it's like. 
We want them to know that it hurts, so we'll do it back. We'll find creative ways of doing it, which I'll talk about later. But we want revenge. It's our natural tendency. And I, I was good at it growing up. So was my big sister, frankly. Uh, so we, we would, of course, do the, the, big, uh, the younger brother, big sister thing all the time in terms of pulling each other's hair. Uh, my, my parents would make us do this thing where um, if uh, you got caught doing something wrong, then you'd have to kiss your sibling's feet, <laughs> right? So if my sister did something wrong and I, and I got her caught, uh, you better bet I went outside and I just started running around in the dirt. She's not kissing clean feet. She's kissing dirty feet, and she did the same thing to me, right? Like, these feet stink, and she'd just smile at me. But as we got older, um, we got a little bit more sophisticated in terms of the things we did. This one thing that she did was super annoying because it was super scary, is she would uh, go, Matthew, I have a demon in me. That's what she would do to me. It'd be like dark, and I'd be sleeping in her room, and she would do that to me, and I would be screaming, yelling at her to stop, and then I would threaten her with my briefcase full of pocket knives because I collected them, right? So it was like uh, a checker's game. We try to one-up each other. But as high school rolled around, the uh, demands on image are certainly more powerful for teenage women than they are for men, in my opinion. And uh, at this point, my sister was really struggling really, really struggling with issues of image, what she looked like, how big she felt. And this was after she drew a, a very beautiful charcoal drawing that we had in our, up a, a picture of it in our restroom for a while, of this withered looking girl, absolutely skin and bones, looking into a mirror and seeing someone who was large and ugly. And in her mind, it was a representation of what she felt. She was skinny, and she was beautiful, but she felt large, and she felt ugly. And I remember we were yelling at each other for whatever reason. You never remember how these things start, but you do remember how they end. And I looked at her, and I said, you are so fat and ugly. And I won. I won. I won that conversation, didn't I? And she was skinny and she was beautiful. But how much more does it hurt when somebody else gives words to the very things you're feeling? The only thing that revenge cost me was an opportunity to embody the love that Christ calls us to. But that cost is heavy. It's a heavy cost. Revenge is a roadblock that prevents us from loving the way that we ought to love. From telling people they're beautiful when they're beautiful. 
And the reality, and it's a grim one for me, frankly, is that if I can be this petty and this mean to my own family, how much easier is it to be mean and petty and take revenge on those I barely know? It's too easy. We need to embody the change that we want to see in the world, whether or not we're feeling it. Because what I felt in that moment was a need for revenge. But what all I feel now when I look back at moments like that is remorse. So the, the saying is, is true that revenge is a poison that we take hoping someone else will die. The last point I want to make um, is about love. And uh, I want to address this because the wanting to revenge, the, the, the want for revenge in many ways leads us to the second point in which is love is not a weapon. Um, and I want to read what Paul says. Uh, he's quoting Proverbs 25. He said, instead of taking revenge, right, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And while we understand that beginning part, which is, you know, we need to be compassionate, we need to uh, feed when hungry and give drink when thirsty to our enemies, it's that latter part that we get confused sometimes. And it reminds me of uh, when I was young. I got so many of these stories when I was young. But when I was young, I would sing all the time and not in a beautiful way at all. It was with all the bravado of a screaming child. When you're in that store and you hear, hear like a child screaming at the top of their lungs and you're like, wow, this is annoying. That was me all the time singing random made-up songs with no rhyme, no reason, off-tempo, everything. Everything that could be bad about it was bad about it. And uh, my parents thought that this was exceptionally annoying, and they would always ask me to stop. But I liked it, not the singing, but the being annoying part. <laughs> and I just kept doing it. And then my, my mother one day I remember I had backed her into the corner of the kitchen in Ramona, California with my beautiful singing, right? And uh, she turned around and she did something utterly bizarre. She said, Matthew, that is so beautiful. I love it. Keep going, please. What song is this? I love it. And I said, no, it's not. And then I kept singing worse, louder more annoying. And she said, oh, Matthew, this is good. I love it. Thank you so much. Keep going, please. I love it. And I stopped. I was broken. <laughs> I said, mom, stop. Go back to normal. I want you to go back to telling me it was annoying. She used reverse psychology. She used 
a different method to get the same results that she desired. And that's what we do as Christians. This phrase, kill them with kindness. It's us saying, we want the same results, we just want to do it in a way that makes us feel good. Ashley recently went by, Ashley, my wife, recently went by this billboard on a church, and it said, be kind to your enemies, because nothing annoys them so much. My point is that love is not a weapon. It's not a weapon. To kill them with kindness, it's comforting in many ways to us as Christians because if someone wrongs us or is a bully to us or is not mean to us or to those that we love, we want to hurt them. So if someone says, you can, you can hurt them, but you got to do it a different way. Kill them with kindness. I'm like, sign me up. I'm going to straight murder this person with kindness. I do. I'm locked and loaded with rainbows and unicorns. Are you kidding me? I'm going to strangle them with goodness. I want them to suffocate under the weight of kindness, of course. Right? I'm genocidal. I've got my finger over this button ready to fire a nuclear warhead with 15,000 kilotons of pure happiness. They're going to feel so much shame because of how nice I was. I'm going to hurt them, but in a good way. You know what I mean? I'm going to hurt them with kindness. It's just the same game, isn't it? It's a different strategy to play the same game. We want to take their pieces. We want to jump them, and we want to say, king me, king me, king me, I win. But we want to feel good when we do it. Kill them with kindness. That's not what God calls us to do. Philip Yancey, he's a famous Christian author, he tells the story of something that happened to one of his friends uh, in World War II during the Battle of the Bulge. They didn't have enough men or ability to take German prisoners, so this friend was part of a special unit that went out and killed wounded German soldiers from the night before. And as Philip's friend was walking, he saw this one German who was not wounded, but was just too exhausted to fight. And so he picked up his gun, and he aimed it at him. And the German soldier puts up his hand, and in perfect English, he says, please let me pray first. And Philip's friend says, are you a Christian? And the German says, I am. And Philip's friend says, well, I am too. And so they sat together, and Philip's friend pulled out a Bible, and they read a few scriptures together. And then they prayed with one another. They prayed for their families back home. And then Philip's friend, he got up and he said, okay, 
Well, I guess we'll meet again in heaven someday. And he aims his gun, and he shoots his new German Christian brother in the head. I couldn't find a more literal example of killing someone with kindness than that. But that very real reality is what we're saying we ought to do. That we want to hurt people just with kindness. How could you possibly construe the words of Jesus to think that such behavior is okay. Be kind to your enemies because nothing annoys them so much. The idea is still a love because. We're loving because we hope it will hurt them. We're loving because we hope that in some way they'll feel shame, in some way they'll feel remorse, in some way we can hurt them. It's a love because. And that's not what God calls us to. We should love because, or rather we should love despite, not because. But where did this idea come from that's really, frankly, prevalent in Christianity that we ought to be killing with kindness? And it's, it is in that Romans 12, 20 passage that I read where it says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Uh, here Paul is, is repeating Proverbs 25. And so that last part of the passage is what many use to affirm the sentiment, kill him with kindness. Because doing so would heap burning coals on their head. But it would be very hard because Paul in, in the very verse before is saying that we shouldn't take revenge. We leave revenge to God. Instead, we should rejoice with those who rejoice. Or I'm sorry, rather, instead we should feed those who are hungry and give drink to those who are thirsty. But if he was saying that we should kill them with kindness, he would basically be saying... Don't take revenge, leave it for God. Take revenge, do it this way. It would be inconsistent. And I'll admit that scholars are a little bit conflicted on this, but what they all agree on is that love is not a weapon here. And this in no way is saying that we should ever love people because it is going to hurt them in some way. Uh, what many point out is that the burning coals, that imagery in the Old Testament is always referring to God's power and presence. So this could be saying that by doing so, you're inviting God into the situation. You're inviting God's power and presence to be effective in this situation and say, God, this is too much for me. I want you here too. Uh, some will say that it refers to the Egyptian practice of pouring coals on your head, which symbolized remorse and saying that if you do these things, it may, inspire, it may inspire your enemies to see, wow, why would I be mean to a person who is only kind to me? And they may be won over to your cause. But whatever the case is, it's not saying that love is a weapon. 
The reality is, as I've said before, is that we have to play by the rules, God's rules, and His expectations. And His expectation is that we will make the choice to love people. And He will make the change. If you're not feeling it, do it anyways. That's when it's hard, but that's when it matters. Feeling follows action. Don't let revenge be a roadblock. And importantly, don't let love be a weapon. And so I've told you what the rules are and in many ways what that looks like. Next week, I really want to tell you why why we do this, and why it's so important. Until then, will you pray with me? God, I just thank you so much for how much you have filled my heart with love for people. Uh, God, I see your change in my life so incredibly well, and I am so thankful that you've given me the opportunity to make the choice, God. And I pray that those here now would look at their lives and the situations and the opportunities they have to make a choice, and that they would make the choice to love. God, and I pray that in all your power, you would make the change. I thank you for everything that you do. I thank you for all the love that you give us, God. I thank you for the opportunities that you give us to love people, God. And I pray that our love would be real and effective and it would change the people we are close with now and it would change our community, God, and it would change the world. I pray that we would be faithful to that message and to that calling and that we would embody the change that we want to see in the world. And I pray pray for love above all, God. I thank you so much, and we love you today and forever. In your name, amen.